You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. And in this episode, we are going to be talking about the essential habits of the resilient man. Now, as humans, we all, without exception, are going to face adversity. But some people in our experience, the few, the select few, the heroic few, they seem to respond to it better than others. In this episode, we're going to talk about why that is. And especially, we want to discuss what it means to be resilient, how you can be resilient. And we're going to look at 1 Peter 4, and we're going to unpack three main strategies for becoming more resilient in the midst of the adversity, trials, and suffering that you face on a daily basis. In a Week 11 NFL game against the Houston Texans in 2018, quarterback Alex Smith suffered a gruesome compound fracture in his leg. At first glance, it looked like his NFL career was most certainly over, and for those who saw the injury, right, it reminded you of Joe Theismann. It happened like 33 years to the day, same day, same yard line, same stadium, Washington Redskins. And like I said, it was absolutely gruesome. It looks like Smith's career is over. But then after he's taken from the field, he's taken to the hospital. They're trying to fix the double fracture in Smith's leg. Smith's wife, Elizabeth, speaks about what happened then. There were complications that arose and it nearly cost Alex his life. So this goes from you know, you got a problem with a broken leg to like, this guy might die. Just 57 hours after the horrific break of his tibia and fibula, Smith was drifting in and out of consciousness as doctors raced to figure out what was going wrong. They couldn't figure it out. Blood pressure's going crazy. Temperature's up. Can't figure it out. His wife, Elizabeth, said she knew things were more serious than she had imagined previously. When the head doctor for the Washington Redskins told her, quote, our first priority at this point is we're going to save his life, and then we're going to do our best to save his leg. Anything beyond that is a miracle. Now, later doctors would discover Smith had a rare flesh-eating bacteria that had then led to sepsis. So essentially, his body's attacking this bacteria, and then the body just turns in on itself and is destroying itself. And as a result of this, the surgeons were forced to remove a majority of the muscle and tissue around his lower leg in that sort of calf region. And so what's left of Alex's leg is not much at this point, but it's what the doctors had to do in order to save his life. Now, later, in order to repair this leg, Smith opted out of an amputation, which the doctors offered as one solution. And instead, he decided to have part of his quad muscle removed and then surgically attached to his once broken leg. Now, originally, when doctors were suggesting using part of his lap muscle to uh, replace this muscle on his leg, Smith refused adamantly. And he said at that point, I'll need my lap muscle for throwing a football. You can imagine the doctors looking at themselves, looking at Smith and thinking he can't honestly be serious at this point. But not only did Alex survive, right? He endured nine months, 17 surgeries. He's in and out of hospitals. He's in the same wards with soldiers who've come home from war and are recovering from IED injuries, right? He's gone through all of this. And his leg, by the way, looks like a twisted roll of sausage. And it's true. He went from a wheelchair and at this point, in his story, he can now walk. But the most amazing thing of all, Alex Smith returned in 2020 to play quarterback in the NFL. That's a man with resilience. His rehab regimen was otherworldly. You can check this out on videos. They had it on the ESPN awards ceremonies for the NFL last week. Strength training and running. Alex is out on the field. He's got a full brace. He's trying to move. He's trying to do mobility drills on a football field, he's faced with constant setbacks and disappointments, right? He's sprinting behind a weighted sled, pushing this thing across a football field. The whole while I'm thinking, wow, getting on the treadmill today was such a pain in the butt. And here's Alex Smith. 
right? He's gone from wheelchair back to the ball field. But I love the way that Alex Smith's wife summarized it in an article that she did for ESPN. She said, I know at the end of the day, this is his fight. It's a physical fight, it's an emotional fight, and it's a mental fight. And I'm here to support him, right? That's a good wife. And it's somebody who understands what suffering is doing to a man, to any of us, right? It's a physical, emotional, mental test. And so I think, especially in the article, what's so helpful is it gives us a glimpse into Smith's mindset, which is key for us as we examine what does it mean to be resilient in the face of suffering? You have to have the right mindset. Somewhere in the nine months that he spent in hospitals, right, he's having skin grafts, he's having microvascular surgery, he's having titanium rods put in his leg and then removed, having different rods put in, right, all this crazy stuff. In the midst of all of this, he told his wife, and I want you to hear this. This is perspective. He said, you know what, honey? Do you know how many people would love to trade positions with me right now? Do you know how many millions of people would love to be where I am right now? Do you know the life that we live and the blessings that we have? We can't ever take this for granted, not for one minute. Everything, all of it, he said as he looked at his wife is perspective, right? That is such a beautiful picture of what a resilient man is like. He has trained his mind, his will, his soul to look at the total perspective. He could have been in that hospital bed. He could have been feeling sorry for himself, wallowing in guilt and grief, but he wasn't. He was changing his perspective. As we'll see, that is one key component. That's one of the essential components to being a man of resilience. At one point, Smith shared a hospital with military wounded veterans, and I love this part of his story. He said it was an experience that really changed his overall perspective. It, it really made him see, like, I'm a football player, and these guys have been to war. Alex Smith told his wife this. He said, there are people here that are Army Rangers and Special Forces. Do you know what kind of badasses these guys are? They had that mental fortitude and perseverance. And I look at these men and they're going to get through it. And there's not a multi-million dollar contract on the other end waiting for them, but they're going to get through it because they're tough as hell, right? And I love this about Alex. He said, as I looked at these soldiers, he could just tell, like, if these guys can get through it, like, how am I going to be? a candy ass going through this process, right? I better suck it up and I better put the work in and I better take care of my body and get where I need to be and reach my goals. That's what resilience looks like. Ultimately, Alex said it was because of the medical research with these battle wounded soldiers that led to the surgical practices that would form the basis of Alex's own surgery and then his ultimate recovery. So it's crazy, right? He's in this hospital and because of all these soldiers, you know, these guys, as I said before, they're having their legs replaced, amputees, all this stuff. Because of that, they know how to fix Alex's leg. They've seen this stuff before. And, and by the way, that's how bad Alex's leg injury was. He had J.J. Watt fall on him in an awkward position, and that sucker just snapped. Now, ultimately, those men inspired Alex as they inspire us him to return to the NFL and ours, our journey is to understand better what it means to be resilient men in 2021. Now, I love the end of the story because it ends with quite a bit of glory for Alex and it's well-deserved. Right after the 2020 season, Smith was awarded Comeback Player of the Year and the presentation was done by none other than Joe Theismann. Right, I think Alex could have gotten Comeback Player of the Century. For everything that he went through, near-death experience, it, it's unreal that he's on a football field right now because, again, this guy has resilience. So I want to ask the question at this point in the show, what is it about Alex Smith's story that so resonates and inspires us and awes us? What is it about this story? I think there are many ways to answer that question, including the fact that the injury was so gruesome, right? There's certainly 
a lot of tension and drama and conflict in the story because of that, right? It almost cost him his life, this injury. And merely surviving that much trauma is a pretty incredible thing that captures our attention. But I think, I really think that ultimately the reason that we're awed by Smith's story is because of his resilience. This quality of Alex Smith's soul that he's fully come alive despite the fact that he's injured. There's this dragon energy inside of him, right? He's full of this life force that God breathes into men and he's full of it. And you can sense the energy and the passion radiating so that his suffering becomes an opportunity to display the glory of God and the power of life through his sufferings. Isn't that why we fall in love with stories like this, right? Despite all the incredible technologies, despite all the fancy technological advances and surgeries, despite the highly skilled doctors and the powerful antibiotics and the painkillers, all of that stuff is incredibly amazing. But despite all those things, the substance that ultimately got Smith back on the field was not medical. It was moral. It wasn't located in the scalpel of a surgeon, but it was located in the soul of a man. As it turns out, resilience is one hell of a drug. So that leads us to the next question in this show, which is answering the question, what is resilience? Right? What is resilience? Resilience is defined by the Oxford languages as, quote, the capacity to recover quickly from difficulty or toughness. And it is defined by psychology today as the psychological quality that allows some people to be knocked down by the adversities of life and come back at least as strong as before. So even in the psychology today definition, they're admitting some people have this and some people don't. Some people are able to just take the hits and absorb them and then get back up. Now, resilience is also applied sometimes to chemical substances. And in those situations, resilience is defined as the way a substance or object can spring back to its original shape or it means its elasticity, right? Again, same concept. You can take hits and you can get back up. And you're either the same or, more importantly, you're probably stronger. This is an amazing quality of the soul. Resilience is embodied in the life of the righteous, who we're told in Proverbs may fall seven times, but he still gets up. What is the wicked man like, on the other hand? Well, the same verse tells us the wicked stumble in bad times. They fall and they don't get up. They get KO'd in the ring, but the righteous man keeps getting up. He's like Rocky Balboa in the fight with Drago, right? He takes a beating. And after round after round after round of taking a beating, he gets back up. And that's what resilience is for. And that's what it's like. So I want to define, provide a definition for resilience at this point. Resilience is the capacity of the soul to respond with passion and perseverance to adversity. I'll say that one more time, and then I'm going to unpack that definition piece by piece in three parts. So one more time, resilience is the capacity of the soul to respond with passion and perseverance to adversity, right? Instead of being crushed or ruined by the weight of trials, right? Trials do that to some people. But instead of that happening, instead of setbacks or obstacles destroying your journey, destroying your path, the resilient man embraces them as the path to personal betterment, and ultimately to glory, right? He is like Abraham. You remember what Paul tells us in Romans 4. Abraham waits all this time to have a son, right? Decades and decades, sowing his seed and having zero fruit. Can you imagine that? It's your job, it's your work, whatever you're doing, you, you do it for 70 years and you see no fruit. This is what happens in the life of Abraham. And what does Paul tell us in Romans 4? He says, Abraham grew stronger by the day. Like, this is what I want to cultivate in my life as a man. I want to be the kind of man that goes to work, 
He's faithful every day. Sometimes he sees fruit, sometimes he doesn't. But no matter what, no matter what adversity, no matter how difficult the circumstances of his trials in personal relationships or at work, on the battlefield, wherever he is, no matter what happens, like Abraham, you're going to grow stronger. Right? That is the kind of man that we want to be. So again, as I said, I want to break this definition down into three parts to better explain it. So part number one, resilience, I said in the definition, is a quality of the soul. Resilience is a quality of the soul. Now, keep in mind, the Greek word used in the New Testament for the soul is suke, from which we get our English word psyche, which in turn forms the root of our other word, psychology. So when you think about it, and and this is exactly right if you've already put the pieces together, that means that the right understanding of psychology is it is the study of the human soul, the immaterial part of man. Man is the whole person, mind, will, affections, all of it. This is his soul. It's immaterial, but it is somehow enmeshed and interconnected with everything that he is physically as well. So while many people think of psychology today mainly as the study of a person's physiological or chemical brain waves, the soul and the study of the soul is rightly understood as the total person. And as I said before, it includes the mind, the thoughts, the will, the passions, all of it, right? You can't dissect a human. You can't cut open a human's chest and say, there's his resilience, right? You can't look at his bicep and say, this is a man of fortitude and courage. You can't see that necessarily in his physical body, right? Because it's part of his soul. The soul is a part of a person that is distinguishable from the physical body. We find this in scripture, and yet it is intricately and mysteriously intertwined with that body, right? So Jesus in Matthew 10, 28, he says, don't worry about the authorities and the rulers who can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, right? There's, there's somehow, there's a distinction here. There's a physical body, they can kill that. But when they do that, they can't kill you. They can't kill the immaterial substance of you, which is somehow spiritual, like the Holy Spirit. It's not any less real, but it is somehow immaterial, right? Mysteries are involved in what is the soul, but it is the essence of a man. And so when we say that resilience is a matter of the well-ordered soul, we mean that man in his entirety is well-ordered, his mind, his will, his affections, so that his entire person is able to respond well to trials. So ultimately, a resilient man is one who has learned how to compose his soul, the entirety of his person, in the midst of incredible suffering. You think of Jesus He's going to the cross, his mind, his will, his affections, they are set on one thing. I want to please my father. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, right? He's seeking one thing, right? Purity of heart is very similar to this. The pure in heart seek one thing. That's what Soren Kierkegaard said. The pure in heart will one thing. They want one thing, and that's what their will is bent on. Now, as we're also going to see, resilience is largely about mindset. That is one of the things that the soul includes, and we'll unpack that in just a little bit. It really matters. If you want to be a resilient man, it really matters how you think. Now, as Alex Smith demonstrated, resilience depends largely on a person's fundamental perspective and attitude toward trials, right? Mindset. If you tend to view adversity and suffering as abnormal or destructive or unnecessary, you are not going to respond well to even minor setbacks, right? If you think life is supposed to be this comfortable, luxurious cakewalk, well, then when you stub your toe or the batteries in your mouse die, you're going to be extremely frustrated. Ask me how I know. But on the other hand, if you view your obstacles and you remind yourself daily in your your mindset, in your habits of thinking, you say, listen, obstacles are opportunities. 
right? If you're telling yourself all that all the time, saying suffering is the opportunity to test and prove myself, and it's the path to personal growth, then when difficulty and adversity comes, you're not going to despair. And that's part of the mindset we need to cultivate if we're going to respond resiliently to difficulties. Again, more on that later. Now, the second part of the definition of resilience is that resilience is about focusing on our response to situations, right? So you can read the Stoics, you can read Seneca, you can read the Apostle Paul, you can read the Apostle Peter. It doesn't matter. They're all going to tell you about a fundamental reality of wise men throughout all ages, which is this. Wise men and resilient men do not focus on external circumstances which they cannot control. That is not their primary focus, right? Wise, resilient, godly, manly men are going to focus on their response, their attitude, their emotions, their perception, right? The the wise, resilient man is, in other words, going to order his own existence well. He is going to order his own heart, thought, right? His thought life, his mind, his will, his affections, those are his primary concern. Because listen, bad things are going to happen and there's so much of that you cannot control. But what you can control is your perception. You can control how your attitude and how your emotions and how you respond to what's happening. And so as we talk about resilience, keep that in mind. We want to focus on our own personal response and not external circumstances, which we cannot control. So the third part of the definition of resilience is this. Resilience is comprised of passion and perseverance. Passion and perseverance. So on the one hand, resilience is not cold indifference, right? When you read the story of Alex Smith, Alex is not like, well, it is my duty to press on and to become an NFL quarterback again. I will press on passionless and joyless. No, this man is, the reason that we're inspired is because he's full of this fire, this energy, like this Achilles energy, right? Achilles from the Iliad and the Odyssey. He's full of that kind of energy, the heroes, the gods, what the Greeks would have called the life force. He's full of it. Right? Think of Samson, full of the Holy Spirit of God. This is what we long to be as men, men of passion. Right? We're told in the scriptures, whoever serves the Lord, serve with zeal. Right? Don't be lethargic when you're serving God. And that could be on the battlefield. That could be at a computer screen. It doesn't matter. When you're serving the Lord, do it with your whole heart, all your zeal, passion, energy, life force. This is what we should strive for. And this is the character and quality of resilience that we're talking about, right? The resilient man has figured out what the point of adversity is. He understands why he's there. What's the purpose of my trial? And he's passionately pursuing that aim, right? As we're going to see in just a minute, that aim is sanctification. That aim is doing the will of God. That aim is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is why we are suffering. Peter's going to tell us straight up, this is why you suffer. And so the resilient man is going to embrace this. And Peter will even tell him, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial, but rejoice. You should be rejoicing, full of energy. Seneca says this in one of his essays. He says, listen, when the soldier is put to the fiercest part of the battle, he rejoices. For this is his opportunity to prove himself, right? The warrior longs for battle because it's a place to be tested and tried and proven true. This is where men win glory. And this is how we need to think about our trials. The resilient man understands that man is made for testing, right? Little boys are made for testing. Men are made for testing. We long for it. We long to be proven true. We long for the glory that comes when we are proven true, right? This is why we love reading about Alex Smith. This is why we love reading about the war heroes. We love reading about Shackleton, right? Men who have embraced the furnace of suffering, they've embraced the adversity, and they understand that adversity is the necessary instrument of moral perfection. It's making you better. Embrace it. That's what it means to be a resilient man. 
The resilient man is dedicated to being transformed by his trials. Not for one moment. This is where perseverance comes in, right? Not for one moment, but over the long haul. Like he does this every day. It becomes second nature. Like moral excellence, Aristotle would have told us, moral excellence is about a habit. Like how do you achieve moral excellence? You train yourself. When you're afraid, you train yourself to act courageously, even if you don't feel like it. Right? When you are faced with trials, you're going to have to do something with your mind when your emotions are out of control. And the resilient man knows how to do this. The resilient man knows what his mission is. His sanctification, that's his mission. Right? 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of the Lord, your sanctification. You ever wonder... Want to know what God's will is for your life? Have you ever asked that question? Well, God tells you, my will for you is that you be sanctified in the midst of your trials. I want you to grow and become more holy. I want you to grow in character and resilience, right? Though new obstacles arise, the resilient man adjusts course. He adapts. He ultimately overcomes. He learns the moral excellence of resilience by how? By habit, by discipline. Right? This is going to be integral to how we grow in the perfection of moral excellence. Habit. Train ourselves. We discipline our bodies and our minds. So I want to ask now another question. We've unpacked the definition in three parts. I want to ask a, another question. How can you become more resilient? Right? One of the questions is you look at moral virtues, and resilience is one of them, and you say, is this something that people are born with, or could I grow at this? What if I suck at this? right now? What if I'm not resilient at all? What if like, you know, something bad happens and I curl up in the fetal position and I'm like buster from arrested development, right? I just, I get in the fetal position and I, I just hide from danger, difficulty, suffering, and adversity. I don't even know what to do, right? Maybe you, you've got addictions and you say, when things get difficult, I don't know, man, I just smoke a pack of cigarettes. Maybe I light up a joint Maybe I drink too much. Maybe I go to the ice box and I eat ice cream until I'm stuffed and I'm fat and I'm obese and I'm overweight, right? That's the opposite of resilience, but there's good news. And the good news is this, you can grow, like you can change, you can change your habits and you can become a more resilient person and a more resilient man. And so I want to look at some examples of how we can do this in just a moment, right? Because while we're each born with certain natures, right, some natures may be more or less conducive to resiliency. And it, it may be because of the things that you grew up with. Like if you grew up in Siberia and your mom was feeding you vodka from the teat, you're probably going to be hardier. You're going to be more tough and resilient. If you grew up in America, guess what? You're going to have to work harder because so many of us are spoiled and posh in the lives that we live, right? We're soft. And so resiliency is like this form of hardness, the Hard Men podcast. And we need to learn, and we can learn, to develop this capacity of our soul. And so that's why I want to spend the rest of this episode, I want to talk about how you can train yourself to become more resilient in the face of adversity. And so in order to do this, to unpack the ways in which we grow in resilience, I want to examine a few key principles from First Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. It's really amazing if you read the letter that Peter writes here in 1 Peter, he's writing a letter to the church embroiled in suffering. And what I love about the apostles is these are men. Like you can tell by what they say that they have been in the heart of the battle. These are men who have been at the front lines. They are pastoring their churches in the midst of martyrdom right? In the midst of a pagan culture that hates them. And here they are setting such a wonderful example, exhibiting amazing wisdom. And so it's important for us to glean from that wisdom, right? Are you facing suffering? Well, Peter has something to say to you in First Peter, in particular, chapter four, which we're going to dive into now. And I want to do that in three points. And these are really the three points that make up the title for this podcast episode, The Essential Habits of the Resilient Man. Like I could go into so many more things, but these are the three things that I want to highlight as essential habits 
for how you can be a resilient man. So first and foremost, I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. So 1 Peter 4 verse 7 says this, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So what I want to camp out on right here is this sober-mindedness that Peter calls us to embrace. Right? And one of the things that happens in our sufferings is that like what's the opposite of sobriety? It's drunkenness. It's this uncontrolled way of thinking. And this is our age, man. Emotional reasoning. Like we're drunk with our emotions and so our thinking gets clouded and we start reasoning in ways that are ridiculous. Right? We have cognitive dissonance going on and as we'll see we're employing cognitive distortions in our thinking. So the answer to this, Peter says, is that we need to be sober-minded, right? We need to learn in the midst of our trials how to have a steel mind that knows how to wrestle with difficult situations, knows how to rein in the emotions, knows how to meditate on the truth of Scripture, rather than being ruled by emotions, looking to God's Word and saying, I need to be ruled by this, right? This is what I was saying before. Resilience is a mindset. It's a sobriety of mind. It's about focusing on our response, not external circumstances. And Peter says this throughout the letter. Think about what God is doing in your life. You are chosen and called and elect. Yes, you're exiles, but you're elect exiles. In chapter one, he tells us that you're going through trials. It's necessary for the perfecting of your faith. You're being refined like gold. These are the truths we have to focus on, and we have to do it by disciplining and controlling our thoughts and disciplining our mind. I want you to notice, too, that this is what it means to develop habits of the mind, right? We have to cultivate these practices, and we'll dive into them in just a moment, of changing our perception about the situation. So if you would look at verse 12, you can see what Peter says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So there's a lot that you can unpack in this verse, but number one, suffering is testing. It's a fiery trial. And Peter says in the middle part of that verse, it's here to test you like a moral test to refine you. It has a purpose. We need to understand that our suffering has a purpose. And what else does Peter say? He says, don't be surprised. Like, this is normal. Suffering is the normative experience of the Christian life and of all life, right? It's not an anomaly. But so many times when suffering comes, despite the fact that we've suffered endlessly, it seems, despite that fact, what happens? We wake up in the morning, something goes wrong, and we say, gosh, I can't believe this happened. Right? We need to remind ourselves this is normal. This is the way things go. There are always setbacks. There are always obstacles. It's a test. And if I allow it, it can be an opportunity. And then what else will Peter go on to say? Well, he goes on to say that our trials bring us into fellowship with Christ. So they're actually bringing us closer to God. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. These are the things we need to remember in the midst of our suffering. Instead of focusing on cognitive distortions, what are those? Well, this is what happens, right? Something bad happens and you have emotional responses, which in and of themselves are not necessarily bad. It's what we allow them to do to our thinking that becomes bad. What do we do? We catastrophize. That's a form of a cognitive distortion, right? You get laid off from your job and you say, my life is over. There's no hope for me anymore. Everything I've always done is always a failure, right? You've thought this way, haven't you? I know I have, right? We can say things like, there's another cognitive distortion. This always happens to me. Everything always goes wrong for me. I'm Johnny Raincloud. Nothing ever goes right. Have you caught yourself saying those things in the midst of unexpected trials. 
Well, the goal, and I've listed just a few. You can look these up, by the way. You can look them up online, cognitive distortions. We'll list some books at the end of the show that will list cognitive distortions. But you can find, again, you can find lists online. It's pretty simple to find them. Look them up and just go through them and be like, which of these cognitive distortions am I currently engaging in? Right? Am I creating us versus them distortions in my mind? Am I creating all or nothing distortions in my mind? Right? And what you want to do is start to recognize these distortions as they're happening in your life. And the second thing that you can do is you can start using some of the, the tactics that the Stoics relied upon. And again, these are ones I'll list books at the end of the show that you can, you can look these up as well. Um, some good resources. But they'll use tactics like this. I use this one all the time. This is a test, right? This is directly from what Peter is saying. Just say, this is a test. Challenge accepted. How am I going to be able to handle this test today? Right? You go to work in the morning and your boss is in a terrible mood and he's increasing your workload or telling you how horrible a job you did, even though you did everything you could and you did it right. He just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. He got rear-ended in traffic. His wife sent him a nasty little text, whatever. And you can look at that and you go, why does this always happen to me? Why are hard things always happening? Or you can go, challenge accepted. We get to test how well and how resilient I can deal with difficulty and adversity today. This is a challenge I accept. So that's one of the stoic tactics. Another one could be this. I use this all the time as well. It could be worse. Right? Sometimes, like Alex Smith, like you're feeling bad for yourself, and then you see an army ranger with both his legs blown off. He's not getting his legs back. And even if he did, he's not... He's not going to a multi-million dollar contract if he steps back on the field. Like, he's going to be an insurance salesman. You know? It's not millionaire lifestyle for this dude. And then in that moment, you realize, like, wow, it could, be, it could be way worse. One of my friends always tells me this. I said, she's been through war theaters and just really difficult losing friends and battle and all these things in the military world. And I said, how do you deal... I want to know, how do you deal with the most difficult adversity? How do you stay resilient? We used to work together and she would always tell me, she said, the first thing I do is I remind myself, nobody's shooting, right? Because I've been in that situation where people are shooting. And so now when I'm at home and I got to deal with a difficult child, I got to deal with difficulty at work, whatever it is, difficult relationships in the family, whatever it is, you remind yourself, nobody's shooting, right? You put it in perspective. It could be worse. Right? You could be in Baghdad and your buddies could be getting shot and dying in your arms. This could be happening. And for a lot of people, we need that reminder. Right? It could be way worse. Right? This happened to me the other day. I was thinking about some of the stuff going on in my life. I start feeling bad for myself. And immediately I'm like, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going down this path of letting my emotions control me. It could be worse. Like, you know? When you're told that you got to move out of your house because they're not going to rent you the house anymore. Yeah, that sucks. But is that the same thing as getting the news that you have cancer? No. Right? How many things in life, like if we just said it could be worse. And What if you did get cancer? I know people who have had medical issues, health issues. One of my buddies, right? His wife had a liver transplant, and then like a couple years later, he gets sick. He's got to have double hip transplant, an intestinal transplant himself. I'm like, dude, what are the odds? And this is his attitude. Like, yeah, it could be worse. Some other people have it way worse. At least we had our bills covered. Right? At least people are pitching in and helping out. At least we've had good doctors. It could be way worse, Eric. Right? So this is a helpful stoic tactic. And finally, the third one I'll mention is finding the silver lining. You can always, if you train yourself and you train your emotions in your mind, you can always find the silver lining. Paul, by the way, does this all the time, as he does in first chapter of Philippians, right? Paul's in jail. Paul's in jail, and he's telling the Philippian church all the good things that have happened 
because he's in jail. Like, I'm in jail. People are trying to offend me through their ministries. And Paul says, but I know this has turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So don't worry. Your sufferings are going to turn. They're not thwarting the plans of God. Your sufferings are not thwarting the plans of God. God's kingdom is going to advance. He's going to sanctify you. Right? So Paul says, find the silver lining. Look for the good things that are coming because of your difficulty and adversity. One of the books I'll recommend at the end of the show is Ryan Holiday's book. It is called The Obstacle is the Way. It is a modern meditation, if you will, on Marcus Aurelius and his thought. Very, very helpful. Different ways and tactics and strategies for you to change your perspective and to find the good in a situation, right? Marcus Aurelius, this is where he gets the title, The Obstacle is the Way. All the things, the obstacles you see in your path, the things that you hate so much, if I could just get rid of this, what if that thing was put in your life to help you get to where you need to be, to strengthen you, to change your perspective, to get you to move in a different direction? What if God was using all those things for your good? Romans 8.28, it says he is. So what if we started looking at our trials, temptations, and adversities in that light? Right, so this is the last thing that I want to say about point number one. Right, point number one, that we need to cultivate a sobriety of mind. We need to cultivate a sober mind. I want you, in the midst of your suffering, to focus on God's word. And keep in mind the things that Peter has said throughout this letter. Read the whole thing. Peter says three pivotal things in the letter. Number one, he says that there is a purpose in your suffering, right? You're being tested. It's for your good and God's glory, and you will be glorified with Christ, right? There is a purpose in your suffering. Number two, He says that there is a time restraint on your suffering, right? Peter, Pastor Peter, he says, in just a little while, God will confirm, restore, establish, and comfort you in just a little while, right? There's an end. There's a terminus to your suffering. It's never going to last forever. And then finally, you will experience, same verse, you'll experience restoration. So purpose, timing, and restoration are some of the things that Peter talks about. Why is this important? Well, number one, because there's a purpose, we know that it's not pointless. This is one of the lies we're told and our emotions tell us in the midst of difficulty. Well, my sufferings are pointless. There's no point to this. God is like a black magic worker just poking the doll with the needles. You ever felt that way? I know I have. And we return to scripture and we fix our mind on it. We see God's, there's a purpose. I'm being tested. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. He's treating you as a son. There is a purpose. This isn't pointless. Number two, with timing, what question does this answer? Right? We always say in our suffering, we're like, will this ever end? Like, am I just going to be miserable for all, all eternity? And God says, no. No, you won't be. There will come a point in this life or the next when you will experience what Job experienced, what Christ experienced, glorification. If you have suffered with Christ in obedience, you will be glorified with him as well. And then finally, restoration. Things will never get better. Have you ever told yourself that? And yet Peter says, be assured of the promise of God. Things are going to get better. There is coming a day when he will wipe every tear from your eye And you will know why. You will understand, like, there's glory. Like, the disciples didn't understand, why is Jesus dying on a cross? This seems pointless. I thought he was going to be king. And then he's glorified, and there's this moment, right, where people, oh. Well, now that makes sense. Right? That is going to happen as well for us. So again, we need to be fixing our mind on, on the things of God to know that there is a point, a purpose, that the, the, it, the timing of suffering, it's going to end and that we will be restored. So I want to move on now to point number two. Point number two is this. The aim is conformity to Christ and God's will. 
right? That is the aim of our sufferings. Conformity to Christ and to God's will. God's will for your life is not feeding human passions, personal comfort, or material wealth. So I want to look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, now listen, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Like, do you understand why I'm talking about resilience is about your mindset? You need to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You need to change the way you look at your trials. This is how you're going to become resilient. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. Like, this is one of the beautiful things about suffering is it changes the way you think and therefore the way you live. Like, this is how Peter's logic works. If you want to change the way that you live, you have to change the way that you think. So if you think that your whole life is about getting human passion and personal comfort, material wealth, like moving from one pleasant thing to the next, then you're going to live a certain way. And you're going to be sorely disappointed when you meet with trials like at every turn. Because what did Paul say? Acts 14.22. What did Paul say? I preached to them. I told the churches, you must, through many afflictions, enter the kingdom of God. Right? Paul said to the churches, and he says to you and to me, that's the way it's going to be. You're going to meet with suffering everywhere you go. Right? So we need to change our thinking. We need to arm our mind. Right? View it in a military fashion. Your mind is one of the most powerful weapons that you have. Right? You remember General James Mattis said this the most important space on the battlefield is the six inches between your ears, right? This is true of the Christian life as well as an actual military battlefield. And when you have the right way of thinking and you understand all the things we're talking about, about why suffering, to test, it's for your good, then look at verse two, it's so that you will live for the rest of the time, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God, right? This is how you know you're growing in Christ. Because you're no longer just thinking about how do I get the next dose of pleasure, right? This is what suffering teaches us. It's not about pleasure. It's not about my personal comfort. Nowhere in scripture does God promise that you will be comfortable. Nowhere. Nowhere in scripture does God promise that here on this earth, immediately and at all times, you will have material wealth. Nowhere. God never promises that. Did you eat today? Were, you cl- were there clothing on your back? God was faithful, right? You pray for daily bread. And God says, like, why are you worried about material wealth? I clothe the sparrows of the field and the flowers. How much more? You're clothed. What are you worrying about? And beyond that, God's will is that you be conformed to the image of Christ. So again, just to highlight that, you need to arm yourselves with the right way of thinking. That's what we've been talking about. And in particular, the way of thinking that understands that suffering is teaching you, suffering is purifying your desires, so that what you want is the will of God. This is what suffering is for. And as I said before, referencing 1 Thessalonians 4.3, what's brought to the surface in all of this is that our will and God's will are often in contradiction. And we know that because we have false expectations and goals, right? The reason that you get disappointed is because you have dumb expectations. And I say that because I have dumb expectations, right? Things will happen and I'm like, I can't believe that person insulted me. Here I am on Twitter preaching the gospel talking about biblical sexuality and a green-haired man-hating lesbian insulted me, right? And my wife will remind me like, well, you went on Twitter and you said that women should act like women and men like men. I mean, what did you think, right? We're told that we will be insulted. We're told that we will be hated by the world. And then when the world hates us, we're shocked. 
right? And so as Christians, we need to continually check our expectations. Where did God promise you that all your human passions would be fulfilled, that life was about your fundamental enjoyment and fulfillment? Your college professor told you that. Maybe your mommy told you that. But did God tell you that? No, I defy you to find a verse where it says you're going to be comfortable and rich your whole life. Especially not if you read it all in the context of the entirety of Scripture. Right? If we don't have biblical expectations for our life, we are bound for a life of disappointment. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it's worth repeating. What is God's will for your life? Is it comfort, ease, posh life? God wants you to have the best new Nike kicks. What? Chanel bags? What? What's God's will for your life? Your sanctification. How are you sanctified? Trials. Suffering. Like, it's going to be hard. And so if we just expect that, like every day you wake up and you're like, this is going to be hard. And God's going to be gracious. Grace and peace are going to abound to me. And he's going to purify me and he's going to prove me true and I'm going to get stronger because of it. I'm going to grow. Right? Life is not about the next big pleasure high. It's not about the nicest clothing that you can possibly get. Right? And I think this is one of the myths even of some great teachings and great services like Dave Ramsey. You ever listen to the Dave Ramsey show? And you're like, well, yeah, Dave, if me and my wife were both making six figs, we wouldn't be in this situation, bro. But some of us don't, right? Some of us are not destined for wealth. We can steward the wealth as best we can, and we're not going to be living in a condo in downtown New York. And I think Dave would agree with me, but like your perspective can get wrong When you look at that money and that wealth and you listen to other people, look at the disciples, look at the Christians in the church during this time period. They were poor. They were always going to be poor. Many of them would be martyred and they would die poor. And Peter looked at them and he said, your inheritance in heaven is rich and undefiled and imperishable, unfading. It's being kept for you. You ever read the The story about Lazarus and the rich man. Why are we told that story in Luke's gospel? Why are we told that story? Because many Christians are going to live like Lazarus on this earth. You're going to be hated. You're going to be rejected. They're going to cancel you. You're going to lose your income. And you can rejoice because your inheritance in heaven is undefiled and imperishable. They can't touch it. Jack Dorsey can't touch the inheritance that's coming to you, right? And this is where we need to focus our energy and our effort. Check your expectations at the door. Check your expectations at the door. This is what it means to be a resilient man, right? You, you're, you're constantly bringing your expectations back into line with Scripture. And the last thing I'll say about this is it, it's like a dirty house Right? You don't have to, like, you have to work hard to keep it clean. You do not have to work hard to make it dirty. You do not have to work hard to make your expectations fall out of line. They just do that. Right? It's like the garbage and the junk that ends up in my office or in the kids' room. Right? We, we spend a whole afternoon cleaning, and then five minutes later, I turn around and it's a Lego minefield in the room. Somebody is trying to kill dad with Legos in the room. Literally, the kids are jumping in between empty spaces to get out of the room. And I'm like, why don't you pick it up? I don't know. It just got like this, right? That's how messes work. And that's how expectations work, too. They just happen, right? Your expectations just get out of whack. And so we need to do what Peter says and arm ourselves with the right way of thinking. Bring your expectations back in line with Scripture daily. We have to do this. So final point I want to make. Third point is kind of unexpected, right? This is not where you think Peter would go, but it's where Peter goes. And I think it's because he's such a wise pastor. So I want to look at a third point, which is this, find creative ways to use your gifts or to serve the body. That's not probably what we would first think of when we're like, well, I'm suffering. I mean, I want to 
I want to go get a loan or I want, I want to go pray. Those things can be important. How do you deal with suffering? Peter says you find creative ways to serve the body of Christ in love. Right? This is chapter 4, verse 10. And Peter says, well, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. It reminds me of a quote from a really good Disney movie, actually. Some of them are terrible, but this one's really good. And it's Secretariat. And the protagonist is Penny Cheney. She's an older married, has children, daughter. And her father and her mother have died. She's played by Diane Lane, who does a phenomenal job in the movie. It's a very family-friendly movie. The dad calls leftist communist. It's great. It's great. What more could you want when America was wholesome? But Penny Cheney loses her father. She loses her mother, and she's in charge of the horse farm and the estate and managing the money. And so that's where this horse secretariat, Big Red, comes into play. And she's doing all this work to take care of her parents' estate. She's honoring her parents, Fifth Commandment, right? And somebody asks her, they're like, how are you doing uh, now that your parents have died? You've been really busy. We see you're working really hard. And she kind of smiles and she looks into the sunset and she says, yes. She said, work is good for grief. Right? Work is good for grief. And so that's where Peter leads us with this portion of the passage. Like, how are you going to be resilient? Because here's the reality, like suffering will come. You'll be disappointed. Your emotions will be a wreck. And kids are screaming and they need their lunches and they need homeschooled and you still have to respond to emails and you still have to get on the conference call and you still have to go to work and you still have to fix the plumbing at this house and there's still sewage pumping out in the basement floor and you've got to do something about it. And so after you've ordered your affections, you've, you've armed yourself with the right way of thinking, then Peter says what you need to do is you need to utilize your gifts, the gifts that God gave you. You need to utilize them in work in which there is deep meaning and purpose. And that work is found in loving and serving others in the body of Christ. Now, it's interesting at this point, too, because I found in my own life that when you find mind-numbing busy work, at least for me, that does not lead to a relief in my grief. But what does lead to a relief is like, I'm suffering. My times are hard, but for me, it's writing, it's talking to people, it's counseling people, it's coaching people, it's sharing, encouraging things with people. And I'll do that and I'll get a response and somebody will be like, man, you, you really just impacted me in a deep way. The things that you said or the encouragement that you shared like it changed my day. It changed my week. It, I mean, it was the insight that I needed. Thank you so much. In those moments when you're doing that work and you're seeing that it has a deep, meaningful impact on other people's lives, you forget about your suffering, right? In that moment, you're like Christ hanging on the cross, looking at John saying, care for my mother, right? You're focused on the work that is set before you. You're not focused as much on your pain, Right? One of the worst things that you can do when you're in the midst of suffering is just sit around and do nothing. Right? You've got to get your body moving. You've got to find work that utilizes your gifts and in which has deep meaning for the service and love of the body of Christ. Right? And here's something else as we close to think about. You could be flat broke. Right? You ever thought that? Like, I don't really have much to give people. You could be flat broke, like you got nothing, and you still have a tremendous wealth of gifts that no one can take from you, right? They could take your house. You could go to jail, right? Your cars could all be impounded. They could empty your bank accounts tomorrow, but can they take your gift away from you? Like the gifts that you would use to serve, encourage, love, pray with people. Think about the apostles in the book of Acts. What's going on in their lives? Like Peter and John, first of all, are preaching and the beggar comes up to them and he's like asking for alms. Can you give me money? 
And they say, well, we don't have money, but what we do have is the gospel, like rise and walk, my friend. Right? Think about that's how the gifts that you've been given work. They're so much more valuable than actual fiat currency, especially today. Even gold and silver, that's not where we're supposed to put our trust. I want you to think about the gift that Paul gave the church and the world. Think about this. Paul is sitting in a prison cell writing letters to the church. He's got virtually nothing. And he's just got friendships with other people in the church, Luke, Silas, Barnabas, some of the other apostles and disciples. And so what does Paul do? Well, he says, well, I'm, I'm in prison. And so I, I care for the churches. I'm going to write to the churches. And then Paul's letters, inspired by the Holy Spirit, become part of the canon of Scripture. And millions and millions and millions of Christians throughout history, think about the, you know, the letter to the Romans, Millions of Christians throughout history have had their lives radically and totally transformed by the words that this man wrote in a prison cell. Right? He had no money. He didn't have no Twitter platform. He wasn't Jack Dorsey. I mean, you just can't even, you can't even make it up. Paul's sitting in a prison cell writing letters. He's about to get his head chopped off, and those words are going to change the world. You may not have a lot of money. You may not have a lot of influence in the culture, but you may have a skill that can be used to bless another human. And so what you need to do in the midst of your suffering is find ways to use those gifts, right? Find people who have true needs, serve them, help them. Maybe you fix their plumbing. Maybe you help them fix their toilet, right? Maybe you just encourage them, listen to them. Be like, wow, man, dude, that sucks. I'm so sorry. I'm going to pray with you right now. Like, these gifts of listening and caring and welcoming people into your home. That's what verse nine said, right? Show hospitality. You see somebody who's hurting in your church. Don't just be like, well, sucks to be you. Hope you figure it out. Invite them over. Invite their family over. Make them dinner. Make them coffee afterwards. Play board games. Love on their kids. Right? This is how we care for one another in the midst of suffering. All right, so I want to recap now. We've covered three things under the banner of the essential habits of the resilient man. Number one, you need to cultivate a sober mind and a self-controlled mind. Number two, we need to be pursuing conformity to Christ in the midst of our sufferings. And number three, we need to find creative ways to use our gifts to serve the body of Christ. Now, as we close this episode, I want to point you to some additional resources. I promised I would do that on how you can discipline your mind. First of all, we mentioned this already, but you can check out Ryan Holiday's book on Stoicism. It is titled The Obstacle is the Way. I'll provide links for these as well in the show notes. Number two, I would recommend in terms of Stoicism, I would recommend Bill Irvine's book. It's titled A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. This is particularly helpful book because Bill points out That stoicism does not mean lack of emotion. It certainly does not mean lack of joy, but it means controlling your emotions and controlling it so that you can ultimately experience true joy. Also, I do want to point you to a few other resources. Um, Easiest way to point you to them is just to go to the Art of Manliness, the Art of Manliness. This is Brett McKay's website, and you can just search for stoicism. You can also Google stoicism and the art of manliness and brett's got a lot of really good resources on stoicism an introduction to stoicism and then he goes through some of these books and practices that help you deal with some of the cognitive distortions that we face on a daily basis again links for these will be in the show notes well thanks for listening to this episode of the hard men podcast As always, deeply grateful for our Patreon supporters. We appreciate you guys. For those of you who are waiting for pint glasses, those should be here the week of February 19th, and then we'll send those out to our VIP customers. Again, super appreciate you guys. All the support and love. Could not do this without you. Now, very exciting news for those of you who are interested, and I hope you are. We've got t-shirts, Hardman Podcast t-shirts. 
We've got them up on the website. You can click on the link. You can go to our e-store. And you can also check out, we've got Hardman pint glasses if you want to buy those individually. Those are all for sale. Be sure to place your orders. Get that stuff shipped out immediately. We've got some great shirts. I've already got mine, and it fits fantastically. Now, the last thing I want to make you guys aware of is that we have started a new podcast. It is called the Wilderness Warrior Podcast. That is a podcast I'm doing with my friend and pastor, Dan Burkholder. Dan and I are both outdoor nuts, and we're doing a hunting podcast. We're building a bus for hunting out of. How much cooler can it get than that? Answer, it cannot. So be sure to check that out. That's the wilderness-warrior.com. We'll provide links for that as well. Be sure to check that out in the e-store where you see all the hard men stuff. You'll also see all the Wilderness Warrior podcast information. We have a separate Patreon account for the Wilderness Warrior. We got t-shirts, we got mugs, we got all sorts of stuff. And be sure to check us out on social media as well. We've got an Instagram account where you can follow all our cool pictures, hunting, etc., etc., etc. If you do get a chance, go to Apple Podcasts. You can check out and subscribe both to the Hard Men Podcast and to the Wilderness Warrior Podcast there. Be sure to leave reviews, five stars, please. Deeply appreciate the love that helps get us out to more and more folks. And again, share with your friends if you think they would enjoy either one of the shows. Again, deeply appreciate all the support. Until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.